through this one man's act, through Jesus' one act, we all can be righteous. As sure as our father Adam made us all sinners, Jesus, as the second Adam, can make us all righteous. And I think that is the crux of this prayer that we find ourselves in the middle of. We're in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. And if you weren't with us last week, uh, it's not the Lord's template on how to pray, it's actually the Lord's Prayer, the only prayer that we have of Jesus from beginning to end. And he prays it for, uh, for himself, as we looked at last week. He prays it for his disciples, all on the night before the crucifixion. The night before the arrest, the night before his crucifixion, this actually will be the last time this side of the cross that he'll be alone with his disciples. And I think it's fitting that he ends with this prayer. So one thing I want you to remember from the first part of the prayer in that he prayed actually for himself. And the one question that you have to ask is, did Jesus need to pray this prayer for himself? And of course the answer from last week was no. Why is he doing it? It's so those disciples could hear it. See, he presents to them a brand new relationship with the Father. You don't need me, he says, to have a relationship with the Father. He said, I'm not asking on their behalf, he says uh, to, to, to the Father. I'm not asking on their behalf. I'm asking on behalf of the world, uh, not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me. He says, I'm doing this prayer for them. I'm asking for them. And remember the, well, the relationship that he is, has taught them. On that day you'll ask, you'll will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's that verse right there. The Father himself loves you. It's that revelation that he's given to them that I think that this prayer stems from. I told you, he said, you could have a relationship with the Father that I have, you wanna know what it looks like? Here's what it looks like. And he began to pray. And he said, the first, he says, so he says this prayer is for them. I'm not asking for the world, I'm asking for them. Why isn't he asking for the world? Because it's not the world that has this new relationship with the Father, it's the disciples. And the disciples will now be and do for the world what Jesus did for these guys, you with me? He is now their presence, that's what we have to remember. Ask that they may be given, that they may be his, he says. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but I ask on behalf of those, these guys here that you gave me, because they are yours. The world isn't his yet. Not until these disciples get up and become the presence of God in the world, in their flesh, as Jesus promised that we all would be. And then he said, in the next verse, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. So all, he says, him and the Father again being one. If you believe Jesus loves you, if you believe that Jesus loves you, then you can believe that the Father loves you. And what he says is, is that just as I belong to the Father, he said, if you believe in me, you belong to the Father too. And you don't belong to the Father because of me. You belong to the Father because he loved you. 
He's always loved you. And in fact, Jesus is actually saying, I'm living proof that he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So that's what we remember. And the glorification, Jesus' glory, will be what he's about to do. The glory has already come for what he's done for them up until now. And now tomorrow, his glory will come because he does it for the whole world. So we move on in the second part of the prayer. And he moves from praying for himself to moving to actually beginning to pray for the disciples. What does he have in mind for them now? What does this mean for them, this new relationship, this revelation that they have? So we pick up the prayer, oops, sorry. So we pick up the prayer in verse 11, chapter 17. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He says, I'm not in the world, but they are. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them was lost except for the one destined to be lost so that scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I'm no longer with them. I am no longer in the world. That's an interesting thing to say because he's still sitting right there, isn't he? He's standing, he's probably standing. Rabbis stand. Students, no, actually rabbis sit. I'm sorry, he's sitting, that's what he's doing. Rabbis sit, the students stand, okay? So he's sitting there, and it's interesting that it says, I'm no longer in the world because he's right there. What he's saying is, is that the process is rolling, it's happening. Tomorrow's the day. My time has come, my hour has come. So literally he's saying, it's here, it's, it's, it's moving around. I'm coming to you, Father. I know that this is where I'm headed, I'm coming to you. And he's reminding them that we, even without him there, the Father will protect them. They're fearful and they're worrying and they're even uh, uh, mourning, if you will. Jesus has already pointed that out. You mourn now, but you'll rejoice later, he says. And I believe that he said that your rejoicing should begin now because I just told you something that you probably never thought of or ever dreamed of before, and that is the Father himself loves you. And you're worried, what's gonna happen to you when I go away? Well, the protection that was given me was given me to the Father. I've protected you in my Father's name. And don't worry, he will continue to. He just asked him to, didn't he? Protect them, Lord. Protect them. Okay. In the name that you've given me, I don't want to make too much of this, but even his name, even how you say it, even when you say it, calls out God's protection. Literally, his, his name um, is from Hebrew, it's Yeshua, Yeshua, if you will. We in English pronounce it as Joshua. When it was translated into Greek, it was translated into Jesus, which is Joshua in Greek. And from English, we get Jesus. It literally means Yahweh saves. Goes all the way back to, uh, all the way back to the Genesis, when actually the spies were first sent out into the Holy Land. By the way, the Holy Land, the, the promised land, if you will, to Israel was the promise of salvation from slavery. And remember, he picked 12 spies to send in and, 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 and spy out the land. And he picked this one man named Hosea. But for some reason, 
We can't figure it out, but for some reason, before he sent them out, he changed his name. Hosea's name was changed to Yahashua or Joshua. Because I, th- I believe that Moses, that God wanted to attach that salvation to the very act of taking them into the Holy Land because it's Joshua that will take them in. It's Joshua that will provide their salvation for them. Jesus' name literally means God saves, period. Just say it out loud. And you're saying God saves. We're his children just as Jesus is the son of God, he says. We're then to be one with each other in that. Jesus said, I want them to be one as you and I are one, Lord. We were meant to be as close to each other as Jesus is to the Father. We have our closeness to the Father, thanks to Jesus, and he calls us to be able to be that close. That's what he said. I want them to be as one as we are one. Not one of them was lost. He said, in fact, I want them that close that not one of them was lost, except the one to be destined. You know, I don't wanna to spend too much time on this either. It's that word destined that hangs us up, right? It hangs us up. When you say destined, you say that, okay, well, Judas really didn't have a choice. Judas was destined to be lost. Is that what that word is supposed to mean? Is that what we're supposed to get from this? And the answer certainly is no. Absolutely not. Destination is one of these theological arguments that we have been arguing for at least, at least 1,300 years, maybe even before that. What you should think about when you think about people's destinations, especially us who've been created with free will, is there anybody here that was destined to be lost? Anybody here that was destined to be saved? No. Does God know? Okay, now we're beginning to get the idea. See, what happened was, I think that what happened was that when people began to worship God and they began to uh, study and they began to understand that he knew all, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipresent, that he is omni-everything, okay? The reason that we started coming up with plans like destination, like there are people that just by fate, they're just going to be lost. It doesn't matter. Judas, it doesn't matter what Judas did, what he thought, what he was. He was destined to be lost. No, Did God know he was to be? Yes. Our problem is, is that we don't trust God with that foreknowledge. So we come up with processes like destination. He didn't mean that Judas was born to be lost. He just knew what was going to happen before it happened. You with me? Does that help a little bit? certainly helps me. If you think about it, that is the entire crux of the great controversy. What is God going to do with the knowledge that he has? See, if he truly loves us, would God ever, ever, if he truly loves us, begin to manipulate our free will? Would he save us against our will? Would he condemn us against our will? The whole crux is, is that he's been accused that we really don't have free will, that people are born to be lost or born to be saved. And it simply comes down to this. It simply comes down to, do you trust God with your destination? 
Do you trust God with the knowledge that he knows what I'm gonna do, what I'm gonna say? He knows what's going to happen to me. Do I trust him not to manipulate me? Do I trust him not to be selfish? Do I trust him not to have a motive just to get me into the kingdom so he can win this argument that he has with Satan? If you think about it, that's what this prayer is all about, isn't it? You know, if there's one person in all of this, if there's one person that we can guarantee is going to be saved, it's gonna be Jesus, amen? Okay, and yet he carries out this relationship with the Father that he doesn't have to carry out, all because, he says, because the Father has loved you from the beginning. And he wouldn't think of trampling on your free will. Do you wanna be saved? Do you believe you are? Congratulations. You don't have to worry about arguing over destination and double predestination. Judas was known before he did what he did of what he was going to be. By the way, do we know Judas' final destination? When Jesus said that he was lost, was he talking about the second death? We don't know, do we? We don't know. I'll have to address this some other time but we actually don't know. All I'm saying is this, all I'm saying is this, is that if you truly believe that whatever Judas did destined him to be lost, okay, if you get to the kingdom and he's there, you'd better be okay with it. That's all I'm saying, right? We get to the kingdom and anybody who we don't believe deserves to be there is there. We'd better be okay with it. What are you gonna do? You gonna move out? So don't get hung up on the word destined. Foreknowledge, he does have, and he will not take advantage of it. He will not manipulate it. Why? Because he's loved you, and he does love you. So it's an easy trap to fall into, destined, predestination, whatever. It's especially easy trap for us Protestants who think that the kingdom is nothing, uh, that the kingdom is nothing more than just getting people in. That's not what the kingdom is about, is it? It's about living the kingdom. It's about showing people what the kingdom can be. Not necessarily what it is in heaven, but what it would look like here. What does the kingdom look like here? Which is these 11 guys, which is what they're about to be sent out to do, right? You guys all belong to the kingdom. Now go show them. Go show them what it's like. Go show them what it's like to be in the kingdom. Because he said it was fulfilled. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those you, you gave me. I didn't lose a single one. Somewhere, uh, sometime, I, I, I know that uh, I, I love our mission statement that no one would lack the grace of God. I've tried to work this into a mission statement once before too, is that how would you be able to like to say that we didn't lose one of who was given to us? Wouldn't that be a great mission for a church? Is to be able to every Sabbath turn around and say, I didn't lose one of who you gave us. That everybody that we have is a true gift from God. You're all here because you're a gift from God. And I would love for us to never ever lose you. That's a pretty good mission statement right there. That not one would be lost. It's interesting that Peter's not included in this lost group. See, if we think that Judas' betrayal means lost, 
then why isn't, why isn't Peter included in here? Because doesn't Peter betray just as much as Judas did? As a matter of fact, you can say that Peter betrayed three times more than Judas did. But he's not included in this lost one. He's not, he's, he's not included there. They, they both betray, don't they? They both betray. We'll look at next week, but Peter was standing on the outside of the gate. The other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and then brings Peter in. Peter's hiding in the courtyard. And we all know what happens in that courtyard, don't we? Not only does he betray him, he'll tell her, I don't even know him. Which, by the way, you want to talk about destined and foreknew? Jesus told him that exact thing was going to happen. But Peter's never included in this lost group. We'll talk a little bit when we get to the trial. We'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, to tell you right now, all Jesus needed was for one of his disciples to stand up and say, you know what? What they're telling you is wrong. And the trial would have been over. Now, we know that that isn't going to happen. We know that this has to be carried out. But as far as the law is concerned, all one had to do was to speak up. Peter's standing right in the courtyard where the trial is happening. He doesn't demand to be heard. He doesn't go inside. John might even be in the room. We speculated this in prayer meeting. He might even be in there. And he doesn't speak up. So the difference between Peter and John and Judas, the difference is that they'll come to him after their betrayal. And when I say come to him, I don't necessarily mean that that's exactly what they did. It wasn't like John and Peter said, you know what? I think we really messed up here. We need to go confess to Jesus. Let's go. They really don't come to him. Jesus has to go out and hunt them down. When he comes to them, they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee trying to go back to their old life. (laughs) They didn't really come to him. But when they do sit with him, Peter, do you love me? Jesus gives them an opportunity to be with him even after the betrayal. Judas will not come to him, cannot come to him, and what he does is make sure that he doesn't have to live with the guilt or the shame anymore. That's the tragedy of Judas. By the way, Judas is the one of the disciples that never heard Jesus' words, the Father himself loves you. I wonder how much that had to do with him making the decision that he made. If he, if he still has in his head, again, that roll of the dice, Old Testament father, He has to be think that his condemnation is too great to be forgiven. He's the one guy that never hears Jesus say, the Father himself loves you. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to believe it. And I think that Jesus understands that. He knows that. And that's the other reason why we get to eavesdrop on this prayer. I think that Jesus knows how difficult it is for us to believe that we are really loved, that we are truly loved. He goes on. He says, but now I'm coming to you. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. 
I'm coming to you. I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. So he says, again, Jesus is leaving again. I already told them it's a sorrowful thing now, but my joy will be made complete. The joy is coming, he says. The joy will be coming. But hearing the news about the Father and the promise of them being in him and in the Father, he said, this will complete my joy. This will complete their joy. This is where the transition takes place from sorrow to joy is when we begin to understand that he is in us as well as the Son is in the Father and the Father in the Son. He says, I've given them your word. We talked a little bit about this, uh, but uh, what ways was this fulfilled? You know, when we think of giving the word, we think of what? Well, I don't know if you do. I think of preaching, <laughs> because that's what I'm expected to do, is to give you the word, is, is, is what I try, and, and yes, sometimes fail miserably, but you know, giving the word. Did Jesus preach? If he did. Yes, he did. Uh, it wasn't a majority of his ministry. If you were to uh, lay all the things out of those three and a half years that he was here, preaching and teaching wasn't really that big or, uh, of a percentage of his ministry. But he did preach. So let's just, let's just leave it for preaching right now. Let's just leave it with preaching and teaching. Did he do that? Yes, he did. Uh, did, he, did he preach good exegesis? Did he preach good sermons? Okay, uh, were they Bible-based? Did they have three points? We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm telling you that that sermon is sold short by labeling it as a sermon because the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. It's much more than a sermon. But honestly, how much did he preach? Who did he preach to? And when he did preach, who was it that hated it? Was it the world that hated it? In this scenario here in the first century, if you will, uh, who was the world, if you will, in, 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 in these uh, occasions? We're gonna, we're gonna come down to, you're gonna have uh, the disciples, the people that are around Jesus. You'll have the disciples. We've talked about the crowd. The crowd were the people that weren't really in the church. They were the ones that were on the outside of the church because the church had been telling them they didn't deserve to be in the church. You talked a little bit about them in Sabbath school this morning, right? The people that don't belong, the poor, the sinner, tax collectors, prostitutes, so forth and so on. That crowd, by the way, is the one that is attracted to Jesus. Could they be the world? Yeah, but the problem with labeling them as the world is that Jesus said that the world hated me because of my word. Those people actually loved him, right? And then Rome, you put Rome in there. So, so you've got the crowd, you have the church, okay? The Bible believers, if, if, if you will, uh, the, the leaders, right? Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes so forth and so on. And then Rome is about to be introduced into all of this. Who was it that hated it? Who is it that's the world? We t well, I could speculate that not even Rome really hated it when he preached. 
In fact, Rome doesn't care what he preaches. In fact, Pilate comes this close to letting him go because he said, I, he's not done anything wrong. He's preaching, yes. And the church says, but he's preaching against what God says. Pilate says, you know what? I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. Pilate, uh, Rome would let you preach as much as you want up until the point that you begin to cause a riot. If you cause a riot, now we've got a problem. So when he says the world hated me because of my word and it will hate them because they'll be preaching my word, I don't think he's talking about Rome. He's certainly not talking about sinners. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about people who will not open their minds up enough to be able to hear the word. The people that have their minds made up uh, exactly of how God feels about them, why he feels about them the way that, they, th that he feels about them, and why you can't be of God because of the way that I feel about you. These are the people that hated Jesus. The church. The ones that claim to know God. The ones that only have a relationship with God on tablets and paper. So what I'm saying is, is that Jesus didn't merely preach, did he? He lived, didn't he? He was the living word. See, that's the problem when the living word comes up against the dead word. When the living word comes up against the word on paper. I like to summarize it this way, is that the law, the, the God's word written in the Bible, there it is on paper. We know it, we study it, we read it. Yes, 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 we do. But the word shows up one day, didn't he? Showed up, not written on paper, but written where? Written in the heart, lived in the flesh. The incarnated word, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and walked among us. He comes to a people that is living in darkness. He comes to a people who believe that they can worship God merely by reading about him. And when he walked into that darkness and exposed them for their light, they hated him for it. So I summarize it this way. The people that claimed to have the word that only had it on paper the people that knew the word on paper better than anybody else, when they saw the word become flesh, when they saw that the word was love, not only did they not believe that he was God, they actually call him the devil. So think about that when you read the words about the world hating us. Why does the world hate us? The world will only hate us if we love as Jesus has loved. And as long as, as long as people will only relate to him by the word on the page, then it's always a source of conflict. It's always a source of, of arguing. It's always a source of separating people. You know, doctrine does, does, can, can do that, can it? Just separate people. So then he says, in this, in this battleground then, 
where we're at, where we're supposed to be walking this word, living this word, loving as Christ has loved us, not, not relating to him merely uh, on the page, not relating it to him merely by doctrine, but by living as he lived, by loving as he loved. The one way that we're told that it has to be done is he says here, he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from who? From the evil one. Don't remove them. Don't separate them, but protect them while they're what? While they're in it. You gotta be in the game to win it, right? You can't be outside. They don't belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. You can be in it, not of it. It doesn't ask, he said, don't ask that they may be, may be removed. You can't be his presence if we remote ourselves from him. We can't be his presence if we distance ourselves from him. Why was it? Why was it that he had to ask that out loud? Father, I ask you, don't remove them from the world. Just protect them while they're in it. Why did he have to ask that out loud? Because I tell you, the disciples' first instinct is going to be to separate themselves from an unclean and evil world. And if you don't think that that was the church's first instinct, just look at the church and where we are today in the ways that we've tried to separate ourselves from other people in order to be cleaner, in order to be better. Jesus actually, I believe, praised this because that's going to be the church's first instinct. On top of opening up monasteries and separating us from the world completely, I wonder sometime we need to begin to talk about this living in the end times because there's still a, a very large vocal group of us that think that when the end time all happens, we're gonna run. And what did Jesus say? Father, don't what? Don't remove them from it. Just protect them in it. And protect them from what? Protect them from harm, from disease, Protect them from uh, accidents. Protect them from cancer. Protect them from COVID. Is that what he was talking about here? He said, no, protect them from what? Protect them from evil. The answer is, is that believers doesn't, being a believer doesn't necessarily save us from the things that humanity is exposed to. Do we get sick? Do we get sick and die? Do we get old? Why? Because God isn't protecting us? No, he's protecting us from that which is really harmful. Protect us from what? Protect us from evil. And believe me, one of the evils is to try to tell people that we'd be protected from God because we're believers and you're not protected from him because you're not. That is what? That's evil. Protect us from the temptation to do, to do that, to be that. 
protect us from the temptation to take something as beautiful as, as doctrine, something as beautiful as Adventist doctrine, as beautiful as Christian doctrine, and turn it into a way to separate us from other people, to join and to be uh, believers and worshipers, simply to be better than somebody else. And I'll tell you, I, I, I begin with me as a confession. I begin with me. I joined this church to be right. I joined this church because I was told I would be right and I could be better than somebody else. But thank God that Jesus is in this church and he disavowed me of that pretty quick. We're here for something else. We're here not to be better than somebody. We're here not to be more protected than somebody. As a matter of fact, I could make an argument that the true church is even less protected from all these. These 11 guys that he's talking to, all but one of them are going to die martyrs' deaths. Was it because God wasn't protecting them? In a lot of ways, true believers are open more to suffering than anybody else. Because we believe that suffering has been turned on its head. Suffering can be something that can be used to draw us closer to God. Suffering can, can be used to teach people another version of God. The message that I'm suffering, not because he hates me or he's not protecting me, I'm suffering actually because he loves me. I'm still here because he loves me. Father, don't take them out of the world. Just protect them in it from evil. Not necessarily from anything else. Now, should that keep you from asking? No, it should not. It shouldn't keep us from asking. But when he decides to bless us with not suffering, when he decides to bless us or to protect us from those things, it isn't because he likes us any better or more than anyone else. The Father himself loves you. And we're here because he loves us. And we're either protected from uh, certain types of harm or we're not simply because he loves us. And it's, hard for me to look at Beth when I say this. So I'm sure you've been asking those questions. Son of man, son of God, being children of God still needs incarnation, still needs the touch of the flesh. We have to be in it. We have to be present. We have to be relevant, if you will. He's speaking them into a religious view that taught people, that he's speaking into a religious view that taught people, uh, at least where they came from, they've been taught that people could actually be clean and unclean. Actually come from, from, uh, from fathers and grandfathers and people that go all the way back that have that view of God, that, that roll the dice view of God, that when I pray to him, I'll either get a plague or I'll get a blessing. I'm not sure which one I'll get. 
Jesus says, no, that is not the view of God, but also taught that began to teach that people could be clean or unclean or that unclean objects could actually make people unclean to God. They're still carrying all of that. So naturally, their first instinct when they become uh, sanctified in Christ, when they become uh, cleansed in Christ, their first instinct is to remain clean so they will stay away from all that are unclean and then begin to teach the unclean people that the reason that I don't want to hang around with you is because you are unclean. It's the first thing that he's got to address with them. He said, you're not going to be able to save people You're not going to be able to be my love and my presence with people if you're going to continually remind them that they are unclean. You're not going to win people by reminding them how big a sinner they are, especially in compared to you, St. Greg. So I think that's why the next section is in here. Sanctify them, which means what? What does it mean to sanctify? To make holy, to make clean. He says sanctify them. Because like I said, their first reaction is, is okay, well, you know, we'll be in the presence, but uh, we'll do what our fathers did. We'll just separate ourselves. Okay, we'll just uh, back away. We'll just, we'll just uh, uh, be better at being religious than them. And, and, and that's how we'll do it. We'll become examples you know, to them, if you will. So Jesus said, all right, let me tell you then what it means to be holy. Let me show you what it means to be holy since you, you think that this is the way that it would be done. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for the sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. To sanctify something is simply to make it holy. And that word holy, that word clean, is what throws us. A saint is a holy one. That's where the word comes from. To be made a saint is to be made holy. That Greek word that it's used is actually uh, uh, defined as to separate, to consecrate, to cleanse, purify, sanctify, regard, or reverence as holy. Consecrate, holy, make holy, sanctify. That first word is separate, though. You become clean. In order to be clean, you compare yourselves to the unclean, and you separate from it is the way that we've always seen this. And by the way, we made that because of the, the word. You do it by the word. So our fathers, our ancestors said that if we could keep the word better than anybody else, that is how we make ourselves holy. And actually, it's not the biblical definition of being made holy. Separate means to be called apart, to be called separate for another purpose. You're called. You're to be made holy. But holy isn't a clean thing in and of itself. It is just a separate purpose. How many of you have ever heard that before? To be called to be holy means you've been called to another purpose. Doesn't mean you've been called to be sinless. Doesn't mean that you've been called to be better than somebody else or more holy than somebody else. It means that you've been called for another purpose. I'll give you an example. Jesus was trying to come across to people who would make uh, oaths, they would swear. And 
depending on what you swore by, your oath meant more, if you will. So in other words, they would swear by something, somebody would swear by something else, depending on what they were, what they were, it meant more. So Jesus said, you fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? They would make oaths and they'd say, I'd swear by the offering that this is true. And someone would say, I swear by the altar, which is true. What makes something holy is its purpose. Jesus said that gold that's in the temple is the exact same gold you could melt down to make an idol. The difference between the two is not the gold. The difference between the two is its purpose. We're people. We're sinners, just like who? Just like everyone else. Everyone else. What makes us different is our purpose, not our stuff, not our gold, not our material of whatever we are shaped of or made from. Jesus said that even he makes himself holy. Jesus had to make himself holy? No, it was his purpose. It's what he came to do. Does he need to? Does he have to? No, he does it for their sakes. He does it for our sakes. He made himself holy, so what? So we could be holy. What he's about to do, what he will do for them, what he does for us, what he does for all of us who need it, his purpose is completely outside of himself. See, the son of man could have showed up and he could have been just like the first Adam if he wanted to. Could Jesus have come and lived out a selfish life if he wanted to? Could he have just shown up and wanted to just show people what it looked like to be perfect just so he could say, hey guys, I'm perfect, you're not, peace out. Could he have done that if he wanted to? But our scripture reading last week, our scripture reading this week says no. He came for a different reason. He came for a different purpose. He came for a purpose completely outside of himself. He came only for you and for me. He came only to live out the idea and the dream that God loves you. So we lose what it means to be holy. Because then we take the sanctification argument and we begin to argue about what it means to be sanctified. And I'm tired of the argument, by the way. And I'm sure Ralph is too. I don't know what our combined years in ministry is, Ralph. It's, it's a couple, isn't it? It's just a few. And I have to say that there are times and seasons in my ministry, and I know in Ralph's, where it was completely dominated by this argument of what it means to be sanctified. And it was never supposed to, <laughs> I don't think it was ever supposed to be argued over, if you will. It's the disciples' motive versus their purpose. And their purpose from here on out is to live as if the Father loves you because he does. Now go show the world what that looks like. Be perfect in Christ. Be holy in Christ. You know why? Because you are. 
Do you believe you are? You are. He didn't need to wait for us to become perfect in order to love us as perfect. We are perfect if we simply believe. So then he says, he moves on. Because with those disciples, we don't want to separate them from us because he says, I ask not only on behalf of these. In other words, these guys aren't going to experience any level of holiness different than anybody else who comes to believe based on their word. He says, I'd not only ask for them, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be what? That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen? He said, the disciples aren't saints more than we are because they had a different experience. He says, I'm not just asking for them to be holy, I'm also asking for everybody who comes to believe based on their word, which is who, by the way? You and me. You and I are here because we heard the word at one time in our life. And the only reason we heard the word is because those 11 guys got up out of that room after 40 days and began to preach it and they turned the whole world upside down. He's now talking about who? He's talking about us. See, our temptation would be that those guys must be more holy because they were there, they were sitting in the room. We just heard Jesus say, sanctify them, have them be holy. And he goes, I'm not asking just for them. I'm asking for everybody who will come to believe from their word. Quit thinking that the disciples were saints and we aren't because they were more holy. Jesus is saying, no, we're all holy for the same reason. And that is because the Father loves us. And Jesus is living, dying, and resurrected proof that he is and does. So a disciple's a disciple. They became disciples because they heard his word. We became disciples because we heard his word. You with me? And he goes on to say, here's how the world will believe then. The glory that you've given me, I give them so that they may be what? So that they may be one. So that call for unity that those 11 guys become one in purpose, become one in Christ. Now he calls for us to be unified. To be that close. That we all be what? That we all be one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved me even as you have sent them even as you have loved me. You want to know when the world will begin to believe that God loves them? Is that if you and I become one. That's it. We talk about plans and we talk about strategies. We talk about how are we going to reach the world. We talk about how we're going to evangelize. Jesus said it'll happen if you and I what? If you and I become one our church, the body of Christ. The one thing that will allow the world to believe is that you and I become one. So real quick, I want to close with this. 
Does that mean we have to become uniform? Here's the way we did it in prayer meeting. I don't know, I'm just gonna, I keep using the roll the dice. I'm just gonna roll the dice that you're, you're, you're gonna get this. We always look at unity as, as two extremes. We define unity as two extremes, okay? So uh, how will the world know that the body of Christ actually becomes one, okay? So we can, uh, we can look at this in two extremes. How do we, how do, what's the most, uh, I, I would say, what's the most, this way to be able to, to define that, and that is that the whole church has to become Adventist, okay? Has there been any, uh, been any teaching in our church any time along those lines? That everybody become Adventist? That the remnant actually, you have to be Adventist to be saved? How many here have ever heard that? Okay, we've all heard it to a degree, right? So let's have that as one extreme. The whole body of Christ has to become Adventist, okay, in order to be unified, in order to show the world the love of God. Then on this side, we have the body of Christ. And who is the body of Christ? Anybody who what? Anybody who believes, right? Anybody who believes. So two extremes, which by the way, if, I'm go, if, I, if you're gonna make me pick between the two, <laughs> I'll pick this one, okay? I'll pick this one. And, and you might think that this would be the easiest way to make everybody one is to try to make them all one church, right? All one denomination. That would be the easiest way, would it not? Yes, logically, human, logically. There's a whole lot less, few of us than there is the entire world, so it would be a whole lot easier to do that. By the way, are we unified? Are we uniform? The Seventh-day Adventist church? Do we worship the same way? Do we have the same opinions, even about our own doctrine? In the Eastern European division versus the North American division, are we? We are not. By the way, are we unified in this room? No. Then I believe it's not because we're not unified, it's because we don't have the right definition of unity. We're not called to be uniform, we're called to be unified. By the way, our differences are what make us unified. Unified in this diversity. Unified being able to have a difference of opinion, but come together when it comes to loving Christ. By the way, the definition of love is when you accept me for my differences. My wife took a vow for better or for worse. I don't think she knew what she was getting into, right? But love is when we accept those differences. I know this about you and I love you. Maybe not because of them, but in spite of them. Sometimes. So this teaching, this, this, and it is, it's a false teaching that we have to be uh, completely unified in order to be one. I think it hurts our mission. I don't think it helps it. I think it hurts it. Because we believe in this myth of a quote unquote uniform church and it just isn't so. Right? So I looked up real quick the amount of denomination, you, know you know how many Christian denominations there are in the world? 45,000. 
You look in the United States and there are only 200 listed, and I figured out why, why that seems so low, is because in order to be a denomination kind of registered in the United States is, is it's, it's that you had enough to be able, organization to be able to get together, file with the government as your, your not-for-profit status, so forth and so on, as a, as a religious organization, quote unquote. So actual denominations, they say that there are at least 200 of us, 45,000 around the world, at least 200 known denominations in the United States. By the way, I think that, that that says a whole lot more about how many Christians are in the United States versus what we have been told and what we believe. This is not a Christian nation. So this is what the world sees, right? They see 45,000 churches that don't get along. That's the way the world sees it, right? You guys can't even agree on anything. Especially you Adventists. You got a ton of stuff that you can't agree on. You guys won't even worship on the same day, right? So let me ask you this, though. The world sees all the denominations as a disunity because they, all they see is us fighting and arguing about it, right? What if? What if this miracle of unity is to have all 45,000 of them come together for a particular purpose? What if we did unify for a particular purpose? Not changing our doctrines or our beliefs, still living them, but cooperating and living in order to be unified in a particular purpose. Because I'll tell you this, is that somewhere between a single church and a single denomination becoming unified in order to show the world how much God loves them, and 45,000 denominations becoming unified, between these two lies every issue which every church has to face. Every member of our community is in between here this fight. Every one of our neighbors, our schools, our social justice issues, our, our, our race relations, our poverty, our education, all of them lie in between. We spend all the time trying to figure out how to stay separate, how to stay, keep away from the unclean, how to be cleaner than someone else, and what are we leaving to the world? We're leaving to the world everything that the church could do if we simply knew that we were loved and came together this way. Because I tell you, if we all came together and unified to begin to wipe out hunger and poverty, wipe out racism, segregation, economic depravity, if we came together, all 45,000 of those churches, with every one of our beliefs and begin to do that, what would the world then begin to think about what unity really is? and what we could accomplish if we simply would become one. If we simply would become one. What if just our church did it? All right? Let's, let's say we're supposed to separate. Can you imagine what we could do? 22 million of us? 22 million people if we completely unified to do something in our communities. What do you think? I'm just asking.
that we would become what? That we would become one. No, you don't have to believe exactly the way I believe. You don't have to preach exactly the way that I preach. You don't need the theology or the philosophy that's exact. You don't need the interpretation to be exact. What we do need to be exact, though, is to agree that God loves us. And when we can agree on that, and we have no fear of anything else, then you know what? I can, I can ease up on some of that stuff and actually become closer to you. I can ease up on some of those things and become closer to you. I could look at a, uh, a brother from another church and I could ease up on me feeling that I've got to indoctrinate him. And he says, why don't we do something about the homeless? And that's how Heaven's Healing Hands and our partnership came about. He's never talked to me about our doctrinal differences and he's never heard it from me, which means that both of us are sacrificing something, if you will, right? I mean, he very well could try to indoctrinate me in order to operate with me and I very well could try to indoctrinate him in order to operate with him. Does that mean that I'm saying that none of our differences are important, that our doctrinal differences aren't important? No, I'm not saying that at all. But all I'm saying is that if our doctrinal differences don't bring us together in love, then what good are they? That's all I'm saying. Between uniformity and unity, all the world's problems is right here. And one of the problems that the world has against the church is that we're letting all these go. We either don't get involved, we either uh, don't like the people that are involved, so we don't get involved, and we just let it go. And we slowly, or maybe not so slowly, we quickly become irrelevant, so that when we do go knock on the door and try to tell somebody about Jesus, we don't have anything backing that up. It's probably my favorite part of the prayer. Do you believe exactly the way I believe? No. The world would say, that then separates you. Jesus said, no, it could bring us together. Because we are unified in one thing, that we believe that God loves us. And that we're called to love each other as he loves us. That they may be one, Father. Not just the, not just the 11, but everyone who will hear based on their word. He'll go on to say, I've made your name known and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And then that's where we bring the gospel. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what brings us together as one. So again, thanks for hanging in there. How many here, real quick, by the way, prayed to the Father this week the way that Jesus prayed to the Father? Did you try it? I, I urge you to try it. I urge you to picture what Jesus asked us to picture, to come straight to the Father, to come straight to God. And remember that God looks exactly like Jesus because Jesus is God. I and the Father are what? 
are one. Father, draw us ever closer to you and to each other. I'm glad that this prayer reminds us of that. So thanks again.